Hello, Parkview. This is Thomas Hoke, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Parkview Groups podcast. This episode is for the week of September 4th through 10th. And my goal each week is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make whole disciples of Jesus. And so this week we're learning from Luke 1, chapter 26 through 56, and chapter 2, 1 through 21, another big bunch of text related to Mary and the birth of Jesus. It's sort of Christmas in September this week at Parkview, because we're covering that part of the story. And during our training segment, I want to share a little bit about one of our core values, that is spiritual initiative. And that is because it's so important to us. Uh, we put it right in our vision statement for our group's ministry, that community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety, where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. So having said that, let's dive right into our announcements for this week. So first of all, uh, I want to inform you that in two Sundays, well, one Sunday, let me try that again, one week from Sunday, that is on Sunday, September 17th, from 5.30 to 7.30, we will be holding our community group kickoff event. Now is the time to register. So if you're a group leader and you are listening to this, you ought to be, uh, it's time to register. So I will be following up personally with all of you, but make sure you register. If you're a group member, it's a good time to ask your group leader, are we registered? Uh, will my children have childcare? Will there be enough food for me, etc.? So mark your calendar Sunday evening, September 17th, 530 to 730. Want to see all of our groups there to get excited for what we are doing this year. Secondly, uh, just a quick reminder that we have a quarterly congregational meeting one week from today. Uh, sorry, not today, yesterday, on Monday, September 11th at Central Campus. Uh, so if you are a member or a regular attender, this is a great time for you to come and get up to date with what's going on at Parkview. If you're a member, it's also a time to vote on some important items for us. So the potluck starts at 6 p.m. and then the meeting is at 7 p.m. So we hope you can join us as we cast vision for the fall term and enjoy time together as a church family. We do offer childcare, like I said, for kids 0 through 10 for that event. Um, however, you better register real quick because uh, the deadline is, uh, as I record this, is today, September 5th. So make sure you get registered if you do want childcare. You can find the link for that in the show notes. But with that said, let's move on to our guide segment. All right. As always, our goal as we guide you through this passage is to get a big picture of the passage, to navigate any speed bumps that could disrupt your discussion, and give a couple places to land in application as you consider this passage throughout the week. My hope is that you get exposed to the passage here, that the Spirit begins to work in you. I ask a couple of questions for you to meditate on throughout the week, and then when you get to the sermon, the Lord has already been at work preparing you, and you hear even more from God through this passage. And then by the time we get to group, we're on the third course of the meal. That's right. It's dessert and we get all the sweet stuff. So Luke 1, verses 26 through 56, I'll read it and stop to comment a couple of times, but it's a good chunk of text, so I won't talk too much. Uh, here we go. Luke 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. I'll pause there. Now, 
it's funny to read this and realize Nazareth is uh, a commonplace city for us, but um, is an unknown backwater town for the original readers of Luke's gospel. Um, and to, especially to contrast the, the beginning of this story with the beginning of the story of John the Baptist and his conception and birth. Uh, of course, that happened in many ways, just the exact opposite to the way that it happens with Mary and Jesus. So remember back earlier part of Luke 1, it was the angel Gabriel, same angel, appearing to John, the priest, the old man, elder of the community, high priest, well, not high priest, but priest, uh, publicly at a time when everyone was looking. You know, and I was thinking the other week too about what if what if Zechariah had been had believed the prophecy of Gabriel and had come out of the temple from the time of prayer and announced to the entire nation, you know, so to speak, all the people that were gathered at the temple to pray, I've just seen a vision in the temple. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is going to be born and, you know, all that stuff. Just how amazing of a moment that would be. And yet it didn't happen that way. And it still happened just how the Lord wanted it to happen. But contrast that with uh, Mary. Mary is just the opposite in so many ways. And the angel comes to her privately, not in public, not in the temple like with Zechariah. Everything about this is quiet. It's not loud. It's not the way you expect a king to be announced. So, worth saying. Uh, Verse 28, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I'll pause there. Now, wow, what a greeting from Gabriel. Greetings, O favored one. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. So uh, the context that we have for what that means, what does that mean? Oh, favored one, uh, mainly is the Old Testament, of course, which was the whole Bible at this point. So what did Gabriel mean? Well, in the Old Testament, that choice of words, favored one, uh, was used to describe God's choice of someone to do something special. Uh, It's used of a number of major characters in the Old Testament, Moses, Abraham, I believe, and many others uh, who were going to be used by God to do something uh, unique, especially in the progress of God saving his people. However, the key differences between the difference between those characters and Mary in the circumstance is that those people almost always request uh, favor from God. They request to be chosen. They request to be gifted. There's no indication that Mary did that. Mary has been chosen by God, and we're going to find out why. Why she has, verse 30, found favor with God. Um, But it's a surprising thing to have said about Mary, this likely teenage girl who is in an awkward situation now. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Pause there. So Mary's got a good question there. How is this going to happen? How am I going to have a child if I uh, well, I'm not experienced in that area? Well, um, it's important to contrast this with uh what Zechariah says when 
angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, of course, says you're going to have a son, John, in that case. Zechariah's response is, how shall I know this? And it's clear from the way that the angel responds that what Zechariah is asking is not for uh, a a simple question of the mechanics of how God will fulfill this promise, but he's actually, he's asking for a sign. He's asking for some greater assurance for, by the way, an angel has just appeared to him. He's in the holiest place. And he asks, how shall I know this? Can't you give me some kind of sign? Make, you know, make an angel appear to me or something like that. Mary doesn't respond that way. She just says, how is this going to happen? Um, she's saying, my human understanding can't understand. And so it's a faithful response, as we'll see. Um, and yet it's a good question. How is this going to happen? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High shall well overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So it's a very different, it's a very different response. It's a very different conversation from that which uh, Zechariah had with the angel Gabriel earlier in the chapter. We are supposed to see Mary as a, our first example in Luke, our first faithful example of what it looks like for someone to respond faithfully to God. And specifically, if we think of Luke's overall message for his, his gospel work, uh, that the Son of Man came to seek and, the sa- and to save the lost, Mary is our first example of what it looks like for someone to see themselves as in need of God's salvation and the way I expressed this last week when I preached from this passage, or from chapter 1, was that in uh, Luke 19.10, he says, you know, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's Luke's sort of summary of what uh, Christ's mission is. We need to be sure that whatever, whoever Jesus came to seek and save, that we fit in that category. Lost. We're lost. Mary sees herself in that category, that she needs God's saving work, that she believes that God can save her, that God will keep his promise. And so Mary is our first faithful example of what that looks like. Zechariah, of course, is our first unfaithful example. The, and that's that's one of Luke's messages. It's not the, the high and mighty priest, elder, you know, well-trained, you know, good place in life, socially important person, but it's actually sort of the person from the, the wrong kind of town. Uh, the wrong, in those days, they'd, you know, especially say she... She's a teenage girl. What does she know? Um, That's the kind of person God can use because they see themselves as lost. They can see that they need God. Uh, So continuing on, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and uh, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Um, And Mary said, and this is, it's often been called the Magnificat. This is Mary's song of praise in response to this. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
I'm going to pause there. I know it's mid-verse. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Again, Mary embodies what the Gospel of Luke is all about, that God looks on the lowly. God looks on and exalts the humble. He has come to seek and save the, not the strong, not the mighty, not the smart, not the cunning, not those who have finally figured it out, not those who um, have decided to really take God seriously. In fact, it's the people who realize they have messed up. It's the people who realize they have great needs for the Lord. God can use your life. God can use us as a church when we, as individuals and as a people, begin to see begin to see that what we need most from the Lord is what Mary has in abundance. Humility to see our need for him, to come to him in that way. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's what Mary says. And that's what we need to say too. Uh, not just literally, but in every circumstance. Our tendency is to say, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on, and then fill in the blank, end that sentence with something that has to do with us. For he has looked on my many years of faithful service. He has looked on the way I care for the poor. He has looked on my moral record. He has looked on fill in the blank with whatever in practical terms gives you a day-to-day sense of goodness and worthiness and righteousness or however in whatever terms you want to express that sense of enoughness. I'm okay. And yet the Bible completely undercuts that and gives us Mary, (laughs) gives us Mary and says, if you want to aspire to the kingdom of God, you must aspire to the faith of this teenage girl who shows us what faith really looks like. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And I'll continue on. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And so we get this persistent message. Um, and in many ways, this reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll see later in Luke. Um, is a little different from Matthew, but the same themes are there. God brings down the mighty and exalts the humble. He fills the hungry and the rich go away empty. Those who see their need are blessed. Those who see little need for God, whether Pharisees or the rich or whoever, um, in terms of their natural, literal sort of earthly possessions, whether those, whatever those resources happen to be, they don't see a need for God. Those are the people who are truly lost. But those who find themselves in need of God are saved. So let's, I'll move on to chapter 2, and I'm just going to read this because I'm looking at the clock here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, uh, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her first 
firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels... A multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So, this is God's word for us this week. This is what uh, will be preached. This will be preached by Mark Balmer at Central, and we are doing... Mark going from central to east to preach there and then back to central. Um, that worked pretty well this week. And so we're still ironing some things out, but that's our plan this week. So I'm excited for you to hear him preach on this passage. A couple things for you to think about in the meantime. So if I were to give one big idea for us to consider this week and some things to meditate on, it'd be this. First, uh, we need to see from this passage that the great God of heaven delights in honoring the humble. And what I mean by that is that there are two sort of big emphases in this passage. First is the greatness of Jesus. You see that in the announcement to Mary um, that, that we should call his name Jesus and he will be great, it says. Uh, and then it goes on to express how he will take the seat of his father David. He will do all these great things. His kingdom will have no end. And so we're supposed to see the greatness of Jesus. But then the other emphasis in this passage is God honoring the humble, both uh, the humility of Mary, and we I talked about that a little bit, but also the humility of the shepherds. Uh, now, you might remember in Matthew's gospel, he puts the emphasis in the birth story on the appearance of the Magi, uh, the great kings of the Orient who come and they bring their gifts to Jesus. And his, his accent in throughout Matthew's uh, gospel is on the royalty of Jesus. He is the king. Uh, and so he highlights those things. But in Luke, the emphasis is on is more so on um, Jesus' ability to bring in the people we least expect to be insiders. In this case, he highlights the shepherds who were sort of the, the people who they did that job because there was really no other job to do. Not skilled, not smart. Anyone can watch sheep, right? That's, and, and that's who Luke highlights. So he gives us Mary and some shepherds. That's who he highlights. So God honors the humble. We need to fit in that category of humility. So a few questions that might, I hope one of these kind of rings your bell uh, by the Spirit's power to, to get you thinking on what the Lord wants you, how the Lord wants you to respond to this passage this week as we prepare to hear it preached. Or if you're listening to this after the sermon, uh, maybe it might prepare you for your group discussion. So first, a question for you. What situation in your life is God calling you to respond like Mary when she said, 
I, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. We need to find uh, those places. This was Mary's faithful response. The first recorded faithful response, uh, she said to the angel who just told her, hey, your life's about to get flipped upside down. And what did she say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She had an attitude of humility before God in the mission that she was called to. Uh, so that's that's one question I'd ask you. What situation is God calling you to respond like Mary to? With her humble response, I am the servant of the Lord. Tell me what to do. Command me, Lord. Second, what area of life is it harder for you to have, hardest, I should say, to have Mary's heart of humility? Uh, where she says in the Magnificat, the Lord has looked on my humble estate. Remember, just a few moments ago, I said, our tendency is to fill in uh, that sentence, you know, the Lord has looked on my blank and fill that blank with my accomplishments, my achievements, my faithfulness, my record, my submission, whatever, I don't know what it is for you. But so often the things that we really excel in and that we're actually, we're really faithful in, we can, the shadow side of that is we turn it into a place where we find our meaning and our purpose apart from God, even if we're doing our best to be faithful. So where is that area of life where it's hard for you to have Mary's heart of humility, where she says, "My God has looked on, what? What has he looked on? He's looked on my humility, my humble estate. It's been the Lord's kindness um, that has drawn him to me, not me doing something. And then finally, I encourage you to just delight in the upside down nature of Jesus' incarnation. This biography of Jesus plays out like no other biography of any important person to ever have been uh, celebrated. He is highlighted for his lack of prestige. He, you know, if you were picking, you know, the person who is most likely to bring greatest honor to the king of glory, this is not who you'd think. This is not in terms of where he's from, in terms of his background, in terms of his parentage, uh, in terms of where he's born, in terms of the people who celebrate him. Um, I mean, can you imagine a, a presidential sort of candidate who comes and it invites, you know, whatever the modern day equivalent of the shepherds to come to their inauguration and, and line the streets? I mean, it just would make no sense. We, it doesn't work that way. And yet it does. And that's how Jesus chose. And so I just, let's delight this week in, in that, in that we have that kind of king. So with that said, I hope we glean a ton uh, from Luke 1 and 2 here and uh, have a great experience of learning from God's word as we seek to live Jesus, learn Jesus, and love Jesus together this week. Let's move on to our training segment. So again, our training segment is for group leaders to have a chance to continue growing uh, as group leaders and for those who are interested in uh, growing as disciple makers and possibly serving as leaders in the future. We desperately need new group leaders. So if you're listening to this, uh, thoke at parkviewchurch.org, please let me know if you'd be excited to do that. Uh, we have super streamlined our process for people becoming group leaders so you know all that you need to know and you're ready to hit the ground running. So please reach out to me or if you are a group leader and you know people who would do well in that spot, please let me know. 
But this week, we are going to review our core values as a ministry. Remember, last week, uh, we talked about relational safety, and this week, we're going to cover spiritual initiative. And remember, our vision statement is to make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety. That was last week, where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. So let's talk about that. Spiritual initiative. Spiritual initiative. What are we talking about? Well, we know that spiritual growth is ultimately the result of God's powerful, creative power uh, and God's initiative, right? We have passages in the Bible like 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. This may be familiar to some of you, where the Apostle Paul says this, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so, at the same time, the Bible affirms over and over again that God expects and intends for ordinary Christians to play an indispensable role in the spiritual growth of those around them. So, the Bible says two things at once, both that spiritual growth is ultimately down to God's creative, powerful initiative. God gives the growth. But at the same time, and without contradiction, the Bible makes clear that Christians, ordinary Christians, like you and like me, group member, group leader, we are responsible, humanly speaking, for the spiritual growth of those around us. Maybe the most stunning depiction of this reality comes to us in Hebrews 12, verse 17. It says to the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's Hebrews 12. Now, of course, that passage is talking about the elders of a church, which that is a thought that should give serious sobriety to all of our uh, leaders, uh, myself included. But so also for each of us, there is a sense in which we can all truly say along with the Bible, and by the way, this is something I have said to the groups I have led for a long time. I can look across and say, if my group members are not growing in Christ, the first question I should ask you know, if Bill shows up and Bill's like, man, I am completely stagnant. The last year has been a time of zero growth for me. The question I should ask, whether I'm a leader or another member of the group, is, is there anything I could have done differently? Was there anything and is there anything I could do differently to help that person, that dear brother or sister in Christ, to grow? Um, like I said, that goes for you as a group leader, if you're listening and a group leader, and uh, but also for each group member and for each church member, we sim- we do not we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves spiritually, and the resources that we have in our lives—time, talent, treasure—they are meant to be leveraged for the growth of the kingdom of Jesus. We belong to the Lord, and the Lord has given us, given you, to the people around you, to encourage one another toward Christ. He has not made His will a mystery. His intentions are clear. He wants to use your life, every part of it, every bit of energy and value and meaning in it to encourage both you and those around you toward Christ. And so uh, when we think about groups, group leaders are not the sole you know, bearers of that spiritual responsibility. Rather, it is the call for every Christian to live a, an other-centered or better yet, a kingdom-centered life. However, having said that, someone's got to go first. (laughs) 
think about I think about this often when I think about forgiveness, when I think about serving one another, when I think about so many things in the Christian life. It's kind of like, well, you should do it, but they should do it too. But in the end, you know what? Someone just has to go first. Someone has to set the pace. Someone has to con- do what Hebrews 10 then says, to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Someone needs to be the catalyst for spiritual growth to say, the buck stops with me. I am going to make sure. I, I'm not going to be annoying about it, maybe a little annoying. I'm not going to be self-righteous about it, but I'm going to be sure if the people in my group are not growing, I, I'm not okay with it. I'm going to I'm going to ask the next question. The last sort of the part that I would hold back, except that we've we've made this these promises to each other, to support one another, to love one another, and that's that's the heart of spiritual initiative. In practice, spiritual initiative can be described in a few ways, but all of them have to do with that simple idea. That spiritual initiative is plainly put, it's the ambition to see those around you take a next step with Jesus. Not a giant leap. You see how this is connected to our vision statement. Not a massive, uh, you know, pole vault up to the next level of spiritual interest and commitment, but the, the simple next step. That is how most growth in Christ works. And so how do we get there? Well, at the heart level, this is a matter of having a deep and abiding commitment to the spiritual flourishing of your group members. You must be resolved, heart and soul, to help these dear people to learn Christ and to grow in him. Um, When you read the New Testament with these lenses on, you begin to see examples of this kind of spiritual initiative everywhere. Everywhere. I will give you two quick examples for for the sake of time. So you see what I mean. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8. This is Paul writing to the Thessalonian church a church that he apparently had an incredible uh, love for. Here's what he says. He says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Galatians 4, 18-20 It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Wow. Do those words, <laughs> you can't read those words and then go out into your life and into your community group and be kind of meh about whether your group members are enjoying Christ, obeying Christ, learning about him, being formed in him. Is that a luke? We must reject sort of a lukewarmness toward our relationships with one another that kind of seek nothing and demand nothing and therefore accomplish nothing. I'm sorry to speak so bluntly. We must instead move forward with incredible initiative. That's not, it's not normal. It will be weird, but I'm getting excited now. So spiritual initiative is, it's a heart level commitment full of affection and ambition. Indeed, ambition to see those around you take a next step with Christ. But 
Ambition without execution is just good feelings. And a community group with tons of relational safety, but no spiritual initiative is just a supper club. It's fun. It's nice. It's safe, but it's not particularly Christian. And to go back to what I shared last week, sort of the mining illustration, developing relational safety without exerting spiritual initiative, it would be like drilling a hole in that rock face, but never detonating the charge, never actually busting up the hard and stony places that we need to in order to get to the treasure beneath. It's just drilling holes. It's just weird. We need relational safety to build a foundation so that we can do the good work of influencing others toward Christ at a level that really matters. And this is where this, the spiritual initiative rubber meets the road of human relationships. Every person in your group has a next step, at least one, probably a thousand, but <laughs> I often think that God has a thousand things he'd like to change about my life, but he's, he's willing to work with me one step at a time. Uh, everyone has a step, everyone in your group, everyone, young, old, spiritually mature, relatively immature, educated, apathetic, confused people, everyone. And encouraging someone toward a next step doesn't mean that you are more mature or that you have arrived or that you are better than them uh, or that you're putting yourself kind of above them. It means, get this, it means that you love them. It means you have a vested spiritual interest in their life. The question that a kingdom-minded person, especially if you're a community group leader, a question you might have in mind, should always have in mind, Uh, for every person in your group is what is his or her next step with Christ? You should be just obsessed with that question. What does this person need from the Lord right now? What does this person need from me to get there? And the path toward answering that question for those people has a lot of answers, and we'll get on to that as we continue talking. But the short answer is that we need to bring people into meaningful, spirit-led contact with God's word. Um. And that, that's the goal of our Bible discussions. That's the goal of our time together is to bring people to a place where they clearly see the truth of the passage and begin to think to themselves, or better yet, to think aloud as a community, oh my, oh my goodness. If this is the kind of God we have, and it is, because there it is, it's written right there, how, how must I now live? And at that point, if, if Stuart did well, Spiritual fruit falls into the hand almost before you've touched the stem. It's true. When the Spirit is at work and we're understanding God's Word and we've gotten to the sweet stuff, that's why when I say it's the third course, it's dessert, it's, it's time. Uh, when you lead a group of souls before the Lord in that way, you will know it. And you won't want anything else. And it will cost you something and it will be worth it. That's what we're all about. So let's continue to make whole disciples. Let's cultivate spiritual uh, uh, relational safety. Um, let's encourage all of our group members to practice this kind of spiritual initiative, love for one another that produces good works of love in others for God and our neighbors. Let's share Christ with others. Let's make whole disciples as a whole church. We can do this together. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 